0: Hello and welcome to the Stoicism Philosophy as a Way of Life podcast. My name is Donald Robertson and today's guest is Michael Tremblay. Michael is the co-founder of the Stoa Meditation app and co-host of the Stoa Conversations podcast. He's a doctorate in philosophy from Queen's University in Ontario. His research is focused on moral education in the Stoics and philosophy as a way of life. He's also a wrestler and the black belt um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Is that right, Michael? That's right. You got that all perfect. Spot on. So we're going to have an interesting conversation today. It's not often you get to talk about wrestling and martial arts and philosophy all in, all in the same breath. Yeah. It's, so it should be. It should that's be fun. a fun intersection. Yeah. Um, but before we get into that, uh, I just wanted to start off by asking you how you got into philosophy in the first place.
1: Yeah, cool. Um, so my journey, my philosophical journey, I really do think began with martial arts. So my dad runs a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school. So for those that might be less familiar with that, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's, it's a type of martial art. I basically say it's like, it's like fighting without hitting. So you're trying to submit the person. You're trying to pin them to the ground, choke them, arm bar, do whatever you can to finish the fight, but you're not hitting each other. So it's a grappling style, uh, similar to wrestling, except there's submissions involved. So my dad runs a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu school, and that's a type of martial arts. It comes from this eastern, uh, eastern background. You know, it has its origins through Judo, which is a Japanese martial art. And martial arts, as opposed to sports, were always. I think of sports as about this—it's self improvement, but it's self improvement against an obstacle. And mm-hmm. I think of martial arts as really emphasizing holistic improvement. So there's this idea that you know you failed as a martial artist. If you can beat people up, you can kill people, but you're a bad person. You know, you you're not a good martial artist. You have to be you have to be strong, but then you also have to be kind. You know, the 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 paradigm of the martial artist is that person who you know pi- stands up for the kids getting bullied. You know, or protects themselves against bullies, not not the person that's bullying, that's a some sort of perversion of martial arts in a sense. So there was always this idea of kind of ethical and moral development in martial arts. That's that's where I got that that root, but um you know, we would talk about it, we would think about it, but we didn't. We didn't necessarily get the chance to deep dive into it. And then I, I, I was in university, I was in psychology, and I, I wasn't really enjoying it. And I, th- I think now I realize that I wanted psychology to be a philosophy. The age I'm at now, I think I love psychology again, but mm-hmm. I didn't want empirical studies. I wanted these, uh, I wanted questions that they weren't interested in in first year and second year about the nature of consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, um, the nature of ethics. And I got that in my philosophy elective, so I switched in. Uh, fell in love with that, and then in grad school, did a seminar on ancient philosophy, and we we did Stoicism. We had to read some Epictetus, and I, I described that as kind of a lightning bolt moment. Like a there's a, every once in a while, there's you you either watch a movie, you read a book, you listen to a piece of music, and you go, "There's something special here. There's some sort of special connection." And I had that with Epictetus, and um, I decided to specialize and deep dive into it, and that's what I've been doing ever since.
0: Well, correct me if I'm wrong but people that are into martial arts are usually more into Buddhism. Is that fair to say if they're going to pick a, a philosophy or a religion to get into? And so how come you weren't more drawn to Buddhism? I'm assuming that you, you know, you probably looked at Buddhism at some point, but you ended up diving deeper into stoicism. Why stoicism and not Buddhism then? Yeah, it's a good
1: question. I did a Buddhism
0: course in undergrad and at least when I was younger,
1: I remember the the first time I learned about Stoicism, I was in maybe I was maybe nineteen, and I thought, well, this is stupid. I was like, this is this is wrong. Uh, clearly, there are good things that are, uh, you know, clearly it matters, um, you know, at least to a certain degree, how much money you have and um, you know your reputation and your social status. This this just seems like too extreme for me, and it didn't click with me uh, when I was maybe nineteen. And then I, I did I did a class on Buddhism, and, and I liked it, but I, I think I think if, if martial arts is attracted to Buddhism, it's because of that Eastern connection. It's because people that get into mm-hmm. martial arts respect Eastern culture, um, you know, Japanese culture in particular type of martial arts that I came up into, although there's lots of, you know, Kung Fu is a Chinese martial art. There's lots of great Chinese martial arts as well. Um, and so that they, they go naturally from that connection. But I think the the thing that didn't appeal to me about Buddhism and kind of my maybe gripe with Buddhism today is that it's really about kind of dissolving And I might be getting this wrong, I'm not a Buddhist specialist, but I see it as really dissolving the self. And so there's this kind of tension or the suffering that comes between the self and reality, what you conceive yourself as and what you want reality to be. And you do that by, you you resolve that tension by deconstructing the ego. That's the way Mm -hmm. I think about Buddhism. Where in Stoicism instead is like, no, no, you exist just what you are. Might be different than what you thought you were, you might just be you know your character, your virtue, you might not be your your car, your possessions, your reputation. you exist, and you want to perfect what you are and improve what you are um, just just and that 's the way to resolve that tension is by focusing on the self, not dissolving the self. That was the difference, and for me, I think in particular with combative martial arts because some martial arts are. More, I would say they're more meditative, less less about direct conflict. In the way that Brazilian mm. jiu-jitsu, boxing, mixed martial arts, these kind of ones are about direct conflict. And in those conflict ones, um, you're you're just always searching for ways to navigate stressful situations successfully. And I, th- I guess maybe as a progressor, stoicism has more to offer in the intermediate stages. You know, maybe you could become a Buddhist sage. And you know you mm-hmm. wouldn't be stressed about competing or fighting people either. But I think in the in the in the interim, ideas like the dichotomy of control, the ideas of um, you know taking accountability for your your emotional life and for your passions, things like that, that has a lot more appeal to me as someone who was actively competing, actively fighting at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. I went through a phase as well of kind of being interested in Buddhism. I think the reason I became more interested in Stoicism, is probably like it's often the case it's probably a combination of things like one, I didn't get the cognitive model of emotion from Buddhism that I got from stoicism. So I didn't get the connection uh, in the same way with cognitive behavioral therapy and also Buddhism, although it's incredibly diverse, probably more diverse than, uh, than Greek philosophy even um, generally seemed to me to be about attaining Nirvana and cessation of desire and peace of mind And that kind of reminded me of Epicureanism and it seemed like a relatively passive goal to me whereas Stoicism seemed a bit more action-oriented and that was kind of what I was drawn to. And so I wonder, the the other thing I wanted to ask you about is you're particularly interested, uh, from what I can see, in Epictetus and you studied his contribution to moral education and I know there's a connection there with uh, martial arts and exercise. So I wondered... What do you think the main things, first of all, that's probably a good place to start. What are the main things that we could learn from Epictetus about moral education?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. Good question. Good place to start, but also a big question. Um, When I look at Epictetus as a teacher, so as you said, I did my my PhD on Epictetus, and the reason he attracts, I'm so attracted to his work philosophically, is that he was a teacher, and so I see him kind of biographically or historically as someone who learned from trial and error. So from trying to teach people and and seeing, uh, being unsuccessful or seeing which stoic kind of methods worked and which didn't. So you have somebody who's not just writing a book of lessons, but somebody who's actively talking to students. And mm-hmm. a couple of the key points that I took from him, one, I think Epictetus is really sensitive to this kind of progressive model of moral education or this idea that even though um, even though virtue is knowledge for the Stoics, we, you can't just take a, you can't just take a 101, you know, quick lesson and be like, okay, I'm good to go. You know, knowledge is the only good. I'm, 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 you know, virtue, virtue is all I need. I'm, I'm done. Uh, there's this kind of break between people who have read that, who have endorsed that, who, who at least have endorsed on some level who want to be good people, but are still failing to do so. And I see that, I see his observation of that kind of struggle of the intermediate, not the person who doesn't care about stoicism and not the, um, I would say experienced stoic, but the struggle of the intermediate and a focus on that for me as someone who is progressing myself, that for me is the most interesting question. And that's the question he's most interested in. And his answer to that, I think he has a couple answers, but one of those is the emphasis on training,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, on escasis, on actual exercises that we can adopt uh, to Habituate ourselves, or to um, better endorse the Stoic principles that, that we, we already find compelling, and another. So one. So that's one part. Is that look? There's this kind of problem that intermediate students of Stoicism run into. The gap to that issue is actual intentional practice and training, which is something mm-hmm. that I think you know uh, has been endorsed quite recently, uh, and, and and been a part of. I would say the modern Stoicism movement. And then another part of it is the idea, he also looks at the three, he has his three disciplines and this is pretty popular now. Um, the discipline of desire, the discipline of, of ascent, and then the discipline of of action, you can call it. And another thing he points out is, is about how there's an, a necessary order here. And if you jump straight into the discipline of ascent, you start studying logic, you start studying reasoning, epistemology. Mm-hmm. If you don't have desire right, you're going to be the kind of person who really likes to show off how much you know about stoicism. You're going to become the kind of person who likes to brag or win arguments on the internet, but isn't really worried about your personal development. Um, and likewise, if you if you go into action you know, too quickly or not in the right way, um, you're going to not really understand why you should be acting the way you should be acting or or understand the stoic principles that underpin that. So I guess it was kind of this, this, it's another solution to that intermediate problem, that progressive mm. model of development. Lots of stuff I could talk about with Epictetus, but I think those are the two, his two main contributions that I think are really valuable.
0: It makes me think of a bunch of, things. I'm, I'm very interested in the stoics. I'm also quite interested in Socrates. And one of the things I find most intriguing about the legacy of Socrates is that Xenophon who I think we can all agree is a big fan of Socrates, mm-hmm. has a criticism of Socrates. And in fact, he says in the memorabilia, memorabilia that the, the only criticism that he would really make of Socrates is that he thinks, Xenophon thinks, he should have taught his students more about self control first of all, before he started teaching them about justice and politics, which is an interesting criticism to make. And it's also interesting because we know the Stoics were quite into Xenophon. And it may be that they read that, and they certainly could have taken some inspiration from it, because that's more or less what they do, as you say. Epictetus says the discipline of desire, uh, or mastering the passions, comes first. So he would have been in agreement with Xenophon there, and actually remedying something that he saw as slightly off about Socrates' approach. I think this idea as well about training being required is kind of, in a way, part of our dilemma in Greek philosophy that goes all the way back to Socrates' disagreements with the sophists. So the sophists used to deliver lectures. They did other things as well, but they were mainly known for teaching formula and giving speeches that were quite long-winded at times. And part of the beef that Socrates had with them was re- revolved around this whole idea that you could conceivably learn virtue by listening to a speech or reading a book or memorizing a maxim, more or less in the way that you you could get virtue from a sophist in kind of almost the way that you could get onions from a greengrocer just by handing over some cash like you know you kind of get it in a brown paper bag or something like that that virtue could kind of be learned in this relatively passive way. Um, and I think you see the Stoics really developing this theme in Socrates and turning it into a much more systematic approach, in my view.
1: Yeah, well, as you know, I mean, Epictetus is incredibly inspired by Socrates. Anthony Long writes about that um, in his book. I think he calls his his book on Epictetus a Socratic guide to life or something like this. Um so, yes, Epictetus is directly picking up on that line of reasoning or kind of following Socrates in that tradition. I didn't know about that set of line, though. That's really interesting. Um,
0: and I think, I think it's quite intriguing, yeah. I was going to say, the other thing about Epictetus, we'll come to this in a moment, is that for a guy with a bad leg, he talks a lot about sports and competing in the Olympic Games and stuff like that, which is a paradox, right? It's kind of ironic in a way if we really visualize it. You know, this older guy sitting here like talking as well about how he's lame, but he's talking a lot about modeling certain aspects of the Olympic ideal.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Epictetus' use of sport, that's something that I'm really interested in. I think there's a couple of things that he's doing there. I think one is kind of culturally specific and kind of a motivational aspect, which is to say, look, you look at these Olympic champions and you think, wow. Those are the real men. You know, that's what I want to be. That's that's what it means to be amazing. And he's saying, no, you know, the real Olympic Games is when you go to the market. The real Olympic Games is when somebody's kind of a uh, you know, says something you don't like and you got to hold your tongue. And so he's he's kind of recontextualizing this ideal through metaphor and saying and trying to spur people in a kind of a motivational way, trying to say, look, the way you, you know, the way you see some people training to be Olympic champions and doing that, even if they don't have the perfect body for it, even if they know there's a good chance they'll fail because only one person will win, you have to be like that, trying to be Socrates. And not everybody can be Socrates, but you can all try. Mm-hmm. And so there's that, really, there's that kind of kick in the butt part. But another part about Epictetus' discussion of sports, I think, is that he's actually um, illuminating something about the nature of philosophy, which is that it's a craft, um, which is that, that to, to do philosophy well, to be a good Stoic is to navigate a difficult situation with skill. Um, and when we want to learn about what it is to, to do difficult things with skill, we should look to athletes. Um, that, you know, we could perhaps look to musicians. We could perhaps look to doctors. There's other kinds of techna or crafts, but, um, athletes are particularly good ones because they're confronted with, um, you know, rigorous difficult training and then also this idea of, of constant failure and uh constant social failure and difficulty. So the athletes are the ones that um, you know, I think I think in his view, really have adopted a learner's mindset, adopted what we might call today a growth mindset, uh, which is to say, you know, he, he provides this one of my favorite quotes, he said, Look, like when when life is hard for yourself, I'm paraphrasing here. He says, when life is hard, imagine yourself like a good wrestler who is in a training room and there's nobody good to train against. The wrestler would be upset. He'd say, coach, get me somebody. Get me somebody that can test me. I want to figure out what I have. I want to learn about myself. He said, look, you're, you're the same way. You should be like that. When something difficult comes, you think, well, there's my training partner. Thank you. Now I can learn about myself. I can learn what virtue I'm lacking in. I can learn what I need to work on. And so that kind of learner mindset, that growth mindset that athletes have He's, he's pointing to his students that you could learn something from that as well. Mm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's part of a, a, a larger and more fundamental theme that runs through Greek philosophy that I think comes from the cult of Apollo at Delphi um, and the maxim, know thyself. So in a way, like, all of these ideas or many of them kind of resolve in, in forms of self-examination and self-knowledge kind of knowing our limitations and knowing what we're capable of. That's something that no one else can tell us, really. Like, we, we, we learn that mainly from trial and error. I think his analogy about the herd of cattle says something similar as well. How does a bull know that it can defeat a lion? And Epictetus says it's kind of from experience, you know. It's through trial and error, like, over time. Like, how would you know that you can beat certain opponents in wrestling and not others? Only really by sparring them and finding out by putting yourself to the test.
1: Yeah, and so to bring this back to the martial arts, so for anyone listening who's 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 not a martial artist, I nerd out in martial arts a little bit, but it's relevant to this. So I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and one of the one of the reasons I mean, I specialize in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. One of the reasons Brazilian jiu-jitsu is so effective is because it has live sparring. So, which is to say that you attempt your technique in full resistance against another person attempting their technique with full resistance. And so ironically, the reason Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has, has live sparring and full sparring is because it's actually relatively safe. Because when I am applying an arm bar, I'm able to do that in a way that slowly, that means that you can give up, right? If I was practicing eye gouging or neck breaking, you know, my, my, my coach has a joke, you can only practice eye gouging twice and then you need to find a new partner. You can't you can't practice it very much. You can't practice uh-huh. it with a resi- You can't find many people who are willing to practice it with you. These very dangerous things. But because Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is pretty safe, you can actually practice the moves uh, at hundred percent resistance. And because that, you end up in an iterative process of self development, both personal development, but then the art itself grows. The art itself learns through trial and error what parts of it is, are good and what parts of it aren't good. What are effective and what's not effective. And so I, I think you I think you you hit the nail on the head, which is to say, it's another comparison, which is say when learning about philosophy, you need to engage in this iterative process of trial and error, which means you need to do difficult things. Um, In terms of my own personal development, I like martial arts. So there's this metaphor where I can learn something from the athlete because they're a person who's excellent at their craft. But then I use martial arts as my training tool to practice my stoicism because it's the most difficult thing One of the most difficult things I figure I've found that has very low consequences for failure. So if I go and compete, I'm incredibly exhausted. I'm socially humiliated. Humiliated might be an exaggeration, but I, uh, you know, I, I I've, if I lose, I've you know disappointed people. I'm at least have that potential of disappointing people in public. Um, It's scary. Like somebody's trying to somebody's trying to to you know choke you or armbar you. But at the end of the day my body's fine. None of this reputation matters for my career, let alone these more, you know, abstract or intense stoic concepts of my character. So it's mm-hmm. very high difficulty with very low consequence. And I find that's almost like a hack to, to practice my stoicism as a, as a training ground. Mm.
0: What you were saying earlier made me uh, think of a well-known quote from Marx Aurelius that refers to wrestling, he refers to wrestling a number of times as his Epictetus. And actually, we should say, side note, we should say, um, probably, I'm no expert on this, but I I would suspect that virtually all ancient Athenians in the classical period had some training in wrestling and possibly Pancratian. Most Romans Uh, I would think also had training in boxing and wrestling. Marcus Aurelius, we know, did boxing and wrestling and Pankratian as well. Um, So it's no, when these guys talk about martial arts as a kind of metaphor for philosophy, they're drawing on their, their personal experience for the most part. And so Marcus says the art of living is more like wrestling than like dancing and I'm going to ask you in a minute what you thought about that, but I just want to add a little bit of context and say Marcus Aurelius had done both extensively. Um, so he trained in martial arts, he, I guess he trained in uh, uh, wrestling and boxing and so on, but he he'd also led a dance troupe. And I wonder whether part of what he has in mind in that quote is something that wouldn't be immediately obvious to us today, which is the type of dance that he did was he led the uh, a priestly college called the Salii, and what they did was a martial dance where they banged spears against shields and they would leap and I think in some ways, these kind of dances were common in Rome and Greece, and they were used to train young men traditionally and to exercise them in preparation. Uh, for military service, particularly in ancient Greece. And I, I, when I read about that at first, I thought, it sounds very stylized. like, And some of the moves had probably become obsolete by the time of the Roman Legion. But I thought, it kind of reminds me of something. It reminds me of kata or patterns in uh, Asian martial arts. And so I wonder in part if Marcus is saying, Um, practicing philosophy isn't like doing kata. It's not like rehearsing, using a spear or a shield and just prancing around and chanting and stuff like that without actually having somebody trying to fight back against you. It's more like wrestling where you've actually got an opponent um, and you're testing yourself against genuine adversity. So I wondered what you thought about that quote, that the art of living doing philosophy he really means philosophy is a way of life is more like wrestling than dancing is he right
1: i think that first thing is i think that context is really interesting because um you know at a shallow level you could take you could take him to be saying something like it's hard not like this easy uh you know if you think of contemporary dance I think, I know, I think a lot of dancers are great athletes, but you can almost have this kind of masculine versus feminine notion in here. And it's this interesting Mm -hmm. thing that, you know, you're pointing out, I think that he's, he's not saying that, or he's not being pejorative of the arts or any, in any sense, it's this idea. I think you're hitting on this idea of choreography versus spontaneity. But another thing that he could have had for his metaphor, I mean, he could have talked about battle. Mm -hmm. He could have talked about war. Um, Especially if he's, if he's talking about war dancing, if he wants to talk about spontaneity, and conflict i think I think some of the points about martial arts, I think, as you said it is is an actual opponent, genuine testing against yourself that's one of the things that I love about martial arts is that there's another person trying to do their best to sabotage you they're not um, they're not empowering your movements they're not adding to your movements you're not working together to be the best person you could be, like if you're you know working with a in a gymnastics routine or a dance routine, somebody's actually shutting down your movements. And the other, the, the other, one other thing I think about that is I think that stoicism in many ways is actually quite defensive. So when you use this kind of impression model of psychology, other, there's other metaphors in Epictetus, at least about, you know, your mind should be like a fortress where you should guard against people coming in. So you're, you're fighting against if, an, if you have an impression and you assent to that impression incorrectly and you come up with some, some poor judgment, mm-hmm. you then begin this feedback loop. You'll have extreme emotions. You'll start reasoning poorly later on and you'll end up in this, this negative cycle. So there's this idea of fighting against these false impressions. So there's, there mm-hmm. is a combative aspect to it. And I think the third aspect when I read those metaphors, um, I think one other point he says it's more like boxing than uh, fencing. In a different part in the meditations. And when I, when, I, when I read that one in particular, and same thing here, especially as now you point out they would have had spears and equipment, mm-hmm. is this kind of essentialist idea where good living is about using the tools that are essential to you, that are always there, that are part of your essential self. Namely, you know, your good reason, your character, your, your reflective capabilities. It's not about putting yourself in a position, you know, you, you have the better sword you have the better routine. It's not about putting yourself um, to rely on any sort of external tool. It's about navigation of, of your essential self in, in a conflict. That's what I think of when I think of that quote.
0: Yeah. We, when we were talking about uh, dancers, like I say, we, we imagine dancers today, um, but the Sally, danced with spears, daggers, shields, and ancient armor. Um, so the, they were doing something that was kind of like military training, but dance at the same time. Those two things weren't completely separate. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that you wanted psychology to be philosophy. And I wanted to say, of course, that philosophy used to be psychology and psychology used to be uh, philosophy. And these things originally were. Connected. They were integrated in a way that they're not today. They became separated and specialized academic subjects become more and more specialized over time. And part of the appeal of stuff, sometimes people say, why study ancient philosophy? And I think I've thought about that a lot. There are several answers to that, but I think one of them is that in ancient literature, what we find is an integration of different fields of study that are separated today. And part of that would be that understanding sports, understanding military values, understanding religion, understanding athletic training, these aren't viewed as completely separate subjects in the ancient world. The scene is more interconnected from the outset. And a piece of trivia that I wanted to, I feel that I have to mention for our (laughs) listeners, is a bit of context here, is in the ancient world, certainly in the Greek world, when they had sporting events, First of all, the young men that were competing in sports were doing it as part of preparation uh, for their military cadet training. Um, And it was tied up with religious rituals in the sports grounds, the gymnasia, they had shrines. They were dedicated typically to Apollo. Um, They would chant, they would dance, they would wrestle, and they would go to compete in places like Delphi at religious festivals where people would read poetry and perform music, and they had religious temples and ceremonies there. But they'd also have, uh, you know, if you, you go to Greece, you find that where the, the sports stadiums, the ancient sports stadiums are, are are beside temples. And so philosophy, religion, athletics, military service, all of these things were much more integrated than they are today. They weren't viewed as completely separate topics.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I never thought of that before. Um the kind of compartmentalization that we've experienced today. I mean, as soon as you said it, I think it's exactly right. Um and a sensitivity, I think as you put it, to these relationships, a sensitivity to um how they can feed into each other. You know, another thing that um Another thing that we that we experience a lot in the martial arts community is this relationship between the body and character uh between embodied practice movement exercise, and personal development um and that's something that i i I'm very sensitive to you know martial arts obviously again has that that old tradition that long thousand year tradition that's something that i'm sensitive to and i find I find a discussion of that in stoicism or at least a uh certainly in ancient philosophy and certainly in you know plato's republic um and things like this, but less so i it 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 exists today, but I would say in contemporary philosophy in particular um less of an interest in um yeah mixing mixing those different mixing i guess this embodied practice in with personal development which is to bring it back to one of the reasons I got into ancient philosophy, in particular, you said there's a couple of reasons. The reason for me was just this holistically this view of how to live, holistically this view of how to be a yeah. good person, not how to navigate one particular aspect of life at its at its best. Um, and it really offers a discussion of that. And as you said, you know, I get the same kind of debate. It's like, well, why look there? Why not? You know, why not look for the contemporary answers? And I think I think we should lean on contemporary research, like you've done a really good job of yourself, but there's something to be gained from taking that holistic paradigm. Absolutely.
0: Uh, There's another bit of trivia that I wanted to mention that gives us a bit more historical context. I think maybe you touched on it briefly, but in ancient Athens, um, the birthplace of the philosophical traditions that we're studying, Socrates was known for doing philosophy in the Agora, in the city center and marketplace, but he also would hang out quite a lot in the gymnasia, Um, And and that word in ancient Greek means something slightly different from today. It means like an (laughs) exercise ground. It means where people exercise naked, literally. (laughs) Um, And they were really, I guess, the closest term I can think of today is kind of like a sports ground or a recreational ground. They were big parks um, that contained, uh, they would typically contain a palestra or a a wrestling school, but they'd also contain running tracks. Um, They'd also contain libraries. They'd contain shrines and walkways, and older men would go and argue about politics, give speeches and discuss philosophy, and adolescents mainly would wrestle and exercise and do sports and stuff there. So we see Socrates doing that, and then after him, again, with the guess, maybe this is the beginning of the fragmentation, we see the different Socratic traditions and different traditions of philosophy immediately becoming aligned with different gymnasia. So Socrates would kind of wonder about between them, but Plato went and set up his school in the academy, which is one of them. Aristotle went to the other side of Athens and set up his school in the Lyceum, which is one of the other gymnasia. And then this is less certain, but there's some association, we believe, between the cynic school, or at least Antisthenes, one of the main precursors of the cynics, and uh, the Kinosarges, uh, which was the other main uh, gymnasium in ancient Athens, and people would do philosophy. Um, also interestingly, they, they typically walked and talked. why hmm. like, we always hear about them walking. Uh, and a number of descriptions of people walking as they discuss philosophy or deliver uh speeches not so much kind of just sitting around a table like we uh we do today philosophy generally was more of a, an active peripatetic pursuit
1: that's cool i didn't know that about the i mean I, I i never thought about that i mean i knew about peripatetic which means to you know to, to walk around or um but I never associated that with the physical aspect, which we're talking about today, which you're, you're dead on is this, this kind of embodied movement. Um, I guess in its most literal sense, it's this idea of, you know, movement as a way to just help you think about things, you know, movement as movement as a way to kind of process things. But, um, to speak to your early point also about not creating a a dichotomy between these two saying, look, you know, I'm going to do my speech and then I'm going to go for a run or I'm going to, you know, Wrestle a bit, and then I'm going to listen to somebody talk about philosophy and keeping these kind of aspects of holistic self improvement in the same space. I find it inspirational, I find it motivating. Um, I find you know, you can still find that in the certain martial arts clubs and certain dojos. There is still this emphasis. You know, you talk about uh, they would give a speech, you know, if you go to a certain martial arts clubs, you're gonna get a speech. Before your, before your class. Right. And it's going to be a moral speech. It's going to be a speech on ethical philosophy. It's going to be a speech on responsibility or a speech on justice. So we're still seeing spaces for those. Um, just maybe not in the same kind of traditional, I mean, maybe not in contemporary academic spaces in the way you would have.
0: Yeah. There is, I mean, the moral education, you know, you've probably seen this, that when the ancient Greeks talk about philosophy, they talk a lot about philosophy is aimed at the moral education of young men, uh, adolescents in particular. There was a decree honoring Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, that particularly talks about the impact that he had on the youths of Athens. He was like a mentor and a guide to young men. They were all military, essentially military cadets doing the sports and and military t- training that we talked about earlier. Also, incidentally, we're told Zeno used to march up and down the Stoapoykele, the Painted Porch, after which stoicism is named. So he would walk from one end of it to the other. And we're told that he did that partly because he didn't like to see people slouching and (laughs) sitting on the floor. So by marching up and down, it prevented them from sitting down in a circle around him. They had to kind of, you know, run after him um, and keep up. He wanted everybody to be active while he was uh, engaged in discussion and talking about philosophy.
1: Mm -hmm. And another thing that I wanted to, to hit on here, add to this, I mean I like that. Maybe that's kind of I I think today about how I go for runs and listen to podcasts and I think you know maybe yeah. that's not it's kind of like a speech from a from a wise person just there, you know, 2 years ago and far away. Um but another thing about movement, you know, maybe we're not getting this when we talk about walking back and forth, that probably has something to do with kind of focus. It has something to do with um you know, our capacity to to take in lessons when when we're embodied or we're feeling feeling movement. Um and that's interesting. But there's this also this kind of, I think this undervalued um benefit to stimulus or impressions that come from exercise or difficult exercise. And I I think today people have are leaning into this idea of like voluntary discomfort um mm. as something separate from skill development. Mm. This idea of, you know, I just I, I I'm gonna take a cold shower or I'm going to I don't know, deprive myself of something that I, that I want, but that's kind of, you're, you're losing a chance there for some synergies, right? Because mm-hmm. now you're, now you're just doing the uncomfortable thing uh, and that's not getting you anything. It's maybe saving you a couple of cents on your hot, hot water bill or something. But if you can pair those up, right, if you can develop a craft or skill at the same time, yeah. if you can be in a social space, if you can challenge yourself. So now you're getting, you're getting that experience. You're, you're, you know, when I do jujitsu, somebody's squishing me or I'm out of breath and I want to quit. And I, I'm getting these kind of physical experiences, but at the same time, I'm also pursuing a craft that I guess would have the, those techne benefits, those, those understanding about uh, development of skill over time, of intentional practice. So I think when you combine those in sport, there's, there's, there's a unique offering there.
0: I wanted to dive a little bit more deeply as well into the ways in which the experience of martial artists could be interpreted. We've touched on this a little with that quote from Marcus Aurelius, but I'm thinking in particular about a a more obscure quote, which I know you're familiar with from one of your articles, um, which relates to the ways in which the mindset, the behaviour of a pancratist, a martial artist, might be used as a way of understanding the psychology of philosophy and philosophy as a way of life. So we're told, Panatius, who was one of the, who was the last head, of the the Stoic school, said that the mind of a philosopher should be comparable to the fighting stance of a Pancratius. Um, who had quite an interesting fight. Actually, maybe you can comment about that. They had a, quite a, quite an interesting fighting stance. It's shown on uh, many pieces of ceramics, where their arms are stretched out quite far in front of them. Um, do you think we can draw a similar analogy between philosophy and modern martial arts? Is there some kind of parallel between being prepared to fight and being in a fighting stance and the mindset that's required to face Misfortune.
1: Okay, great question. I'm going to take that in in two directions. So I'm going to pause on the fighting stance part because I think that's interesting. But I'm going to provide some martial arts context for those that might not train. So Pancreation. Pan is all. uh, Kratos is power. So it's the person who's strong at everything, and it's the ancient equivalent of today's mixed martial arts, which is this idea of really no style or all styles at the same time. It's kind of no holds barred. So boxers. Would um, you know, you can only punch with your fists. Somebody falls down, they stop it, the person stands back up, there's no kicking, there's no knee, there's no chokes. MMA, pancreation, you you have all you have all of these uh options available to you. Um, I mean, at least in MMA, I actually know a bit less about uh the specific rules of ancient pancreation, which would be something interesting to look into. But I, I think the point there about pancreation in particular, instead of wrestling, is modern mixed martial arts developed There's this kind of through line through Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee's idea was, you know, no style. It was whatever is helpful, whatever is useful. So that means both for yourself, which is to say, you know, if you're particularly good at something, particularly inclined to something, you don't ignore that just because people tell you otherwise or because it's not part of your style. You lean into that personal strength. But also stylistically as part of your school, it's very short-sighted and nonsensical in his view to say, no, this is how Kung Fu does something, or this is how Taekwondo throws a kick. So the question is, what is the best way to throw a kick in this, in this environment? That's the question. And what Bruce Lee did is he really he invented that way of, of thinking, at least in, the, in a modern context, repopularized it, I should say. And that was was the through line that we ended up with, with mixed martial arts, is this idea of, well, let's see, let's not make these arbitrary divisions. Let's make not make these arbitrary rules. Let's say if we put two people together and we say, one of you is going to give up, how can you make that other person give up or, you know, knock them out or, or, or hurt them? And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an intense sport. Um, and so I, when I read about Pancration, when I read that quote, that's what I think is this idea of, I'm not going to be, I'm going to be modest. And I think also of Marcus Aurelius's quote of, you know, if someone could, I'm paraphrasing again, but if someone could show me what was wrong with stoicism, I would reject it. I I'm after the truth. I'm not after, uh, pumping up a specific school. And that Socratic humility, you know, I, I know mm-hmm. that I know nothing. And, you know, you go from Socrates um, and then by the time of this quote, you know, you're hundreds of years in the future and, and maybe we've lost some of that humility and we, we've, we've developed allegiances to certain schools or certain ways of thinking. And we can think about that in our own lives to thinking this kind of commitment to approaching problems from a certain perspective. You know, I'm guilty of that with stoicism myself, and it's something I try not to do. I try to stay open to other schools and other ways of thinking. And so when I when I when that quote is you know the fighting stance of a pancrationist, I think of that as somebody who has co opted to themselves anything that is useful, co opted co opted into their style anything that is effective with effectiveness about how to live well being the primary criteria. And then the second point I think is that defensive point I made earlier about the. Um, about the walled city, this idea of you know, a, a, a fighting stance prepares you for an attack. Yeah. And we, we think of vice as not something that's self-generated by an, 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 an id or an irrational part of ourselves, but something that comes about when we succumb, uh, non, we were not careful about impressions or about the way things seem to us. So we need to be prepared in that stance.
0: We have Long to answered, wake up. But,
1: but good points
0: in part, it's difficult to wrestle, I think, or to do any martial arts when you're asleep, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it seems to me that one of the key things is when, you know, this is my basic understanding is that if somebody's trying to kick you in the face or whatever, you know, you should probably pay attention. Yes. Like first and foremost, and not be daydreaming or be half asleep or something like that. And one of the themes in ancient philosophy is this idea of of being alert, waking up mm-hmm. and paying attention. And you know, the as you know, Epictetus and the other Stoic philosophers, other Greek philosophers in general, have a word that they sometimes use for it, which is prosoké. And this word we see everywhere in modern Greece. It's on signs that say, beware of the dog. <laughs> it's on signs that we say things like mind the gap. It means watch out, be mindful, pay attention uh, to possible dangers. And I learned only the other day, actually, you mentioned this metaphor about the guard, protecting the citadel and so on. Prasokhi is also the word that's sometimes used to describe what a goalkeeper does, um, watching out for strikers, trying to score a goal. And that's a really good analogy for this idea of mastering impressions that you mentioned earlier in Epictetus, because basically what they're saying is that the, in the same way Epictetus says that someone who's walking barefoot would have to pay attention, would have to wake up and be mm-hmm. careful that they don't stand on a sharp stone or something like that. The, the stoic should learn to pay attention to how he uses his faculty of judgment and how he uses his impressions because the real source of danger, Epictetus wants to say, isn't so much that somebody's going to come up and kick you in the face, generally speaking. It's more the you know, your own desires, your own hasty judgments are going to trip you up. So this mindfulness aspect, this paying attention, this prosoke aspect, I think it's partly what they're talking about in the comparison to the fighting stance. Um And it's a major theme in stoicism, particularly in Epictetus.
1: Yeah, I think you're dead on. I'm going to do a bit of a side comment that I think you'll get a kick out of because you set it up so perfectly. Uh I actually... Gave, so on this idea of stoicism and sport, I gave a number of seminars to – I went to Queen's University in Ontario. I gave a number of seminars to the Queen's University varsity men's soccer team, which mm-hmm. is fun because it's quite an emotional sport. And it was a sport that some of those people, some mm. of those athletes would hold on to their emotionalness. They'd be like, I need to be angry to score. I need to be angry to do well. And we'd have these discussions about stoicism and about how it could help their play and their performance. But the thing that always stood out to me is that every time I did this, the the goalie would always be the person that agreed with me the most
0: interesting <laughs> The goalie was yeah. always
1: the person who said no i'm by myself out there i need to keep a cool head i need to watch out for the field i need to uh just focus on what's up to me uh and they were always super ready to buy into stoicism where you know the striker uh might be a bit more hot-headed uh so i thought it really interesting and it's I, really I, a really good
0: analogy for what epictetus is saying i think
1: yeah, it's exactly right. And I would actually go through and I would teach a lot, about, um, a lot about what you write about and how to think like a Roman emperor, go through a lot of these cognitive distortions um, and kind of advocate for, for them to, to eliminate those, um, which, which, which they would find compelling, even if they weren't bought on to kind of the stronger parts of stoicism. So I, thought, I think that's fun. Um, into that point about attention, uh, this is something that I talk about in Epictetus in, in my thesis or in my, in my discussion of Epictetus more generally is he identifies, because one of the key questions that I think is interesting is somebody who's an intermediate, why do they screw up? You know, if, if, if virtue is, is just knowledge and I know what Stoicism says, I believe what Stoicism says, why do I screw up? Why do I make mistakes? And one of the key points that he points to um, is what he calls precipitancy or precipitant ascent, which is this kind of rapid, uh, uncritical ascent. It, to use the mindfulness it's the it's the it's the not being mindful it's not paying attention to the balls that are going in the net if you're a goalie and he says you know sometimes sometimes if you you're good enough to to stick with the metaphor as far as we can take it, sometimes you're a good enough goalie to block those shots if you were paying attention and you're just not and so it goes in. And that's how somebody who might have a certain level of knowledge, certain level of progress, that's one of the reasons why they make mistakes. They find themselves doing things that they regret afterwards because afterwards they kind of plug in, they pay attention and they go, wow, I really shouldn't have done that. Or wow, that really doesn't, um, that doesn't align with my other commitments or how I want to live. So going back to the fighting stance, yeah. And you see this in, I guess to bring it back to fighting, you know, I love this stuff. I think it's really interesting. Um, you'll see a lot of good boxers fight a great boxer and the good boxer will do okay for the first couple rounds. And then the good boxer will get tired and the great boxer won't be tired yet. And the great boxer will, will knock them down. And so you think of this fighting stance, you think of everybody's got a good fighting stance, the first round, the second round, the third round, um, but then they get tired and they start to drop it and they start to make mistakes. And I wonder about that in, in our, this question of our own attention, where there's kind of a tension in a vacuum. Uh, there's attention as a skill, so understanding which things to pay attention to, which things matter more. And then there's kind of a t- attention as a form of endurance. Uh, so this capacity to maintain it over time. Um, that's what I think about.
0: I wanted to ask you as well, and my mind is, well, I think is potentially one of the most important questions that we could address today. So this is maybe a good opportunity to, to get right to it. I wonder, I, so I think you're the perfect person to ask, to what extent do you think people who have experience of wrestling, martial arts, have certain skills, maybe cognitive skills or attitudes that make them, that would be an advantage for them in terms of learning stoicism? So, for instance, when Panetius talks about this fighting stance, I wonder whether somebody who had experience of Pankration, Panetius would be able to say, you know, the way that you're thinking when you're preparing to, to fight and the attention and mindfulness that you exercise, you know, in stoicism, we're doing something like that, except it's directed more towards an internal threat. Like, does that person already have some know-how and some cognitive skills that would pre- predispose them to benefit from stoic training?
1: I mean, I would think absolutely. Like, obviously, stoicism is a bunch of different components. Um, and. You know, the first thing you're going to think of when you say, well, martial artist makes you a good stoic is you think of martial artists who are terrible people and fair point, mm-hmm. right? Martial artists are not going to, not all martial artists are going to endorse a lot of the ethical commitments um, of stoicism. But in terms of that skill set, in terms of that techne, and that was what I was trying to argue at the start was that, you know, Epictetus is pointing to athletes and saying, look, these people have a techne. They, they understand how to, how to develop a skill. And maybe one of the reasons he's pointing to wrestlers in particular is that technique is really similar, maybe even more uh, similar yeah. than something like music, because of that awareness, as you bring up. And I had the opportunity. So again, for the martial arts nerds listening, uh, I had the opportunity once to interview George St. Pierre, uh, one of the greatest, probably top three mixed martial artists of all time, uh, one of the, the the greatest Canadian mixed martial artists of all time. I'm Canadian, so it was a you know you don't grow up in Canada doing martial arts without being a fanboy of, of GSP. It was a great opportunity for me. And our, our, my interview was about the, the mindset, the, mo- the mental game. And I asked him, I said, like, what do you do when you're really nervous before a fight? What do you do when, you know, not only is it somebody's going to beat you up, somebody's going to beat you up in front of, uh, you know, a million people watching and you could lose your career. That's a big stress, right? And he would describe, which is going to sound really familiar to anybody listening to this podcast. He described a kind of um, like looking through a telescope right? looking through a lens and there's all the things in the sky and he has to adjust his telescope so that it's just looking at the things that are up to him just mm-hmm. looking at the things in his control which is obviously a version of the dichotomy of control that you know whether some coach presented it to him or whether they came upon it sp- spontaneously yeah here's a person developing um i would say an, an incredible proficiency at that skill another people i point to are kind of first responders you know, my my sister is a police officer. I've spoken to some doctors about stoicism. This kind of skill in the moment to focus on. Look, I need to be plugged in enough to know what to do, but I can't be so plugged in that I that I lose control, that I succumb to the kind of passions uh, or anything like this. And so, yeah, I think absolutely that's a skill. I think that's a skill you pr- you you can develop in a couple of different ways, but particularly while well doing martial arts. I think the GSP is an example of someone who, you know, came about that without, to my knowledge, having ever studied Stoicism.
0: So there are cognitive skills that martial artists learn that could be utilized for Stoicism as a way of life, as a philosophy of life. Now I wanted to, to conclude in a sense, and this also goes back, I think to something that you touched on right at the beginning, which is kind of convenient that, not all, as you said a moment ago, not all martial artists are necessarily wise and virtuous people. Could, is there a problem if we don't take the cognitive skills that are developed in martial arts and adapt them to the acquisition of wisdom and virtue as a goal? For instance, the ancient Greeks were sometimes quite critical of athletes, Um Socrates was, Pythagoras, I think sometimes the Stoics are as well as seeing things to admire in athletics. So sometimes they might criticize athletes, for example, for being too preoccupied with glory and kind of praise and acclaim and external success. Or sometimes they would criticize them for being too preoccupied with developing their physique. Just act, like being like gym rats, as it were, and exercising <laughs> on the all day, not really, not really developing their minds. So there's a kind of an extreme, like nothing. This the famous maxim of Apollo says, "Nothing in excess, made in again, um, nothing too much, all things in moderation." So you you know there's martial artists maybe Bruce Lee would be an example like who treat uh, what they're doing as a philosophy and a way of developing the mind and undoubtedly as a way of meeting uh, challenges in life more generally and then there's other martial artists who just learn it to because they want to learn how to beat people up <laughs> or um, they because they they want to win lots of tournaments or you know because they want to get as many belts as possible you know, and things like that. So are there, is it possible that someone might get into wrestling or martial arts and it would lead them in the opposite direction from stoicism?
1: Yeah, great question. So a couple of different ways to take that. First, I think about Plato in the Republic. I mean, he talks about different kinds of people, your bronze, your silver, and your gold souls. And, you know, whether or not people are essentially like this or not, I, I do not, I don't think I have a stance on that. I, I would err towards them not having an essential nature. But the idea is that, you know, when you engage in any sort of act, activity, you can engage it for the sake of pleasure, for the sake of honor, or for the sake of kind of virtue, character, knowledge. Um, and I think in anything you do, you're going to find people. So for the martial artist, you're going to find the person who says, I want to make $10 million and I want to buy whatever I can have and uh, you know, drink whatever kind of champagne I want to drink and drive whatever car I want to drive. And that person's in it for the pleasure. It's a particularly painful way to get it. You got to do some calculus. It's a gamble, but, but people are in it for that. Then there's the people that are in it for the honor. Uh, you know, I want the belts, as you said, I want the, my name up in lights. And then there's the people in it for the self discovery and the self improvement. And that's going to happen in any discipline. I think Epictetus, um, well, I know Epictetus himself points out to his students who are in it for the honor, as we talked about earlier, the kind of honor of being the smartest person in the room or the honor of the person who knows how to recite Chrysippus, uh, better than everybody else, but they're not in it for the, the, the character. And he, he mocks these students or he, you know, he, he um gets gets on their case about improving. So I think that mistake happens, you know, we talked about the sophists, right? A lot of those people are getting into learning probably not for the sake of of money at the beginning or maybe they maybe they were, but um some of them were at least turned away for the, for that for that sake. So that can happen in any discipline. So I think what But I don't want to say all disciplines are the same, right? You could say that about everything. It just reduces everything to nothing. I think then what you look at is you look at kind of the culture of it. And you can Mm -hmm. tell a culture by who its role models are and who its Mm -hmm. idols are. So if you go to a school and that school looks up to Bruce Lee or, you know, looks up to examples of people who who emphasize personal development, emphasize being uh, kind, caring, good people. Well, then that's the place you want to be. If you go to a club and they they look up to the person who made the most money, they look up to, yeah. you know, I, I think of a kind of a Conor McGregor in this case as an example of somebody who's quite famous and quite uh, prestige oriented or kind of fame oriented. So I don't think there's, I don't think there's any particular, I don't think there's anything particularly worrisome about martial arts. I do think the thing that I see to answer this in a more particular way
0: yeah. Is, I was going to say, if you want some more examples, Andrew Tate, and oh, yes, Stephen Stephen are also martial <laughs> artists. Like, but they're not they're not necessarily role models. and uh, yes. you know to the, to philosophers.
1: Andrew Tate, I find particularly frustrating. Stephen Seagal too, but I I I um I guess I find him a bit more harmless than Andrew Tate. But I, I guess there's this this um I mean, it was someone like an Andrew Tate or Conor or something in martial arts. There's definitely this idea of masculinity this idea of what it means to be a great, you know, going back to Plato's Republic, there's this quote in Plato's Republic. They're trying to find the definition of, of justice. And one of the things they come to is justice is, you know, whatever the strong person says it is. So there's mm. this idea of, you know, the way I'm going to become great is I'm going to be in a position to dominate other people. I'm going to become stronger than other people. And I think martial arts attracts people for those reasons.
0: Um you're, t- you're referring to Thrasymachus, who in book one of Plato's Republic, who basically says might is right. Yeah. And he's a very interesting character because you're absolutely right. He sounds a lot like a number of modern supposed self-improvement gurus. And coincidentally, his name in Greek, as you maybe know, means fierce fighter.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. I I mean, that's that's a a good example. Yeah, of of what we're talking about here. So I think there's that... um, I think there's that temptation, but I, I I think, I think when people get into martial arts, there's this kind of this moment of, you know, I want to be different and I want to transform myself. And in any moment of of self-transformation, there's vulnerability of that going in the wrong direction. Um, and, but I, I think we want to try to pull it you know, I would be, I would be lying if I wouldn't say this is typically in the martial arts community divided between this conception of kind of martial arts versus fighting. That's really the way that this division is conceptualized. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. a fighter. You know, Andrew Tate is a fighter. He's not a martial artist. The martial artist is the person that has the, um, the fighter has the techne. And I think as we said earlier, there's some aspects of that techne that can be used for good, but it can also be used for bad. Some of that skill of, great attention, great kind of capacity to do di- difficult things. And then there's that ethical aspect that you find in martial arts. And I think anyone would agree that that you'd be a poor example of a martial artist if you uh you know if you had a bad character, if you were a bully, if you try to dominate mm. people. And so I I think that because martial artists builds that ethical aspect into it, it gets away from a lot of this and it has these good role models. But there are tons of fighters who are bad people. There's going to be people who claim to be martial artists who are bad people too. But I think that's the conceptual divide we see in the martial arts community.
0: Well, that very neatly leads us towards a good conclusion today, which is how could people who are into wrestling or martial arts develop? Like, suppose they want to get into stoicism as well or into Greek philosophy in general. Like, you and some of the articles that you've written, I think, you know, maybe some podcasts that you've done would be a good resource for people who are interested in these subjects to find ways to integrate them more fully and to take their training, perhaps, in athletics or martial arts and turn it into a bigger philosophy of life. Um, what, what, do you have anything else that you're working on at the moment or any resources that you've got available that you'd like to share with our listeners that might help them to do that?
1: Yeah, that's great. Uh, thanks for the thanks for the chance to talk about this. Uh, as you mentioned at the start of the show, I'm uh, one of the co-founders of the Stoa app. Uh, so that's Stoa, S-T-O-A, and that's a that's an app that we designed to kind of get around this problem that Epictetus talks about, which is this problem of being an intermediate. So it it, it contains theory lessons, but it also contains uh, mindfulness exercises, meditation exercises, and designed in a way to kind of get you in a habit of practicing those consistently, building those skills. Because really, if you're coming from an athletic background or coming from, from any background and you want to practice Stoicism more, the point I would say is to develop a practice that works for you, like anything else, like stretching, like running, like lifting weights, whether that's two times a week, three times a week, trying to get in that habit. And so the STOA app is designed to, to help build that habit and, and help get people you know progressing in a way that's uh, consistent and, uh, you know, maintainable over time, right? Even even as other things are going on in your life. The other thing that I'm working on right now is the Stoic Conversations podcast. That's one, uh, Donald, that yourself, you've been on. Um, and we have an episode on stoicism and, and sport where we talk about some of the same concepts today, but we go over a range of concepts. Um, and, you know, I, I think of that in terms of what I'm working on, I think of that as the, as the theory to complement the practice of the app. So if any of the things I talked about were interesting today, I'd recommend checking those out and you know, hopefully getting some value from that.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Michael. It's been a really interesting conversation and also one that I genuinely feel has got the potential to inspire some people to get deeper into stoicism and people that, that might be good candidates to benefit from it. So thank you very much for that. And thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, remember to subscribe to the Stoicism Philosophy is a Way of Life podcast and to the newsletter on substack um so without further ado it's goodbye from me donald robertson and goodbye from my guest today michael Trembley. bye yeah, everyone thanks